Yiridu Marangmaji. Hello, friends, and welcome to the very first episode of STEAM, where you can sit back, grab a cuppa, and stay up to date with all the latest happenings in science, technology, engineering, and maths. It's also a place where we look at the intersection of traditional knowledge and modern science and arts, and we speak to the people working in this space to find out what they're up to. Today, we're going to be finding out more about Sony's latest charity stream, a really cool event that's being put on by creators for Instagram, a new development for New South Wales transport involving quantum technology. There's a really cool space archaeology project. And later in the episode, we're going to be chatting with Luke Briscoe from Indigilab about, among other things, the difference between Indigenous people doing science and Indigenous science, and why that matters. First up, Sony Foundation has kicked off its Gaming for Life charity stream, which runs until November 30. Melbourne creators, you can take part by streaming live from Australia's biggest video games venue, which is Fortress Melbourne. I spoke with Sony Foundation CEO Sophie Ryan about Gaming for Life and what it aims to do. We're aiming to raise $50,000 through the stream. We'd just be really grateful for as many um, people as possible to jump on. That was Sony Foundation CEO Sophie Ryan. There are Money Can't Buy prizes for people who watch the stream and donate. And if you donate $20 or more, you also have the chance to win a PS5. And considering how rare they are right now, I reckon it might be worth a shot. To register as a streamer or to watch, you just need to head to sonyfoundation.org forward slash gaming for life. I'll pop a link in the show notes for you as well. New South Wales is leading the world with an ambitious plan to use quantum technology to run the transport network, claiming to save travellers' time and potentially even lives. Deputy Premier and Minister for Regional Transport and Roads Paul Toole said in an unprecedented leap from current computers – Quantum computing would process and analyse massive amounts of information almost instantaneously. That means we can more accurately track the location and capacity of a train or a bus. As part of this plan, Transport for New South Wales is establishing a centre of quantum technology that will be based in Sydney's Tech Central, and it will be co-led by a dedicated quantum technology director and a fellow of quantum technology. That centre will also draw on an expert advisory panel made up of pioneers from government, industry and university sectors, including 2018 Australian of the Year and University of New South Wales Professor Michelle Simmons. Transport for New South Wales is also seeking expressions of interest from global industry leaders, academics and startups to help research, develop and implement the quantum technology pilots and trials across the transport network. Industry briefing sessions will take place in the coming weeks with a plan to award contracts and finalise co-investment proposals in early 2022. Not far away now.
In an out-of-this-world study, space archaeologists are reconstructing life on the International Space Station over the past two decades. It's to better understand space culture and to get an inside look at how astronauts interact above Earth. I spoke with internationally recognised space archaeologist, Associate Professor Alice Gorman from Flinders University, about this project. I'm an archaeologist who applies my skills to the objects that humans have put into space. Amazing. And you're currently working on a project that's reconstructing life on the International Space Station over the past 20 years or so. Why is this important information to have? There's a few reasons why we need to know more about the International Space Station, which you would think we already knew everything there was to know about, but surprisingly, no. Uh, from an archaeologist's perspective, the first thing is that the International Space Station has an end of life. So probably somewhere towards 2030, it's likely to be deorbited. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, it, it's going to come to an end. And it's the only permanently occupied space station that we've ever had in Earth orbit. So it's a unique lifestyle. And as an archaeologist, I and my collaborators want to know what makes it distinct. How do people use objects to adapt to life in microgravity and to life in space? So it's like our last chance to really get a handle on how a new kind of society has been created in Earth orbit. But there's more to it than that. So this is very contemporary stuff, obviously. People are used to thinking of archaeology as being about very ancient places. Yeah. But but what we're working on here is something that's contemporaneous with us. So this means what we find out by using archaeological techniques to look at how the crew interact with their environment is we can find out things that can be used to design better space habitats in the future. So there's actually quite a practical purpose to having a look at how the crew live everyday life on the station at the moment. Well, that makes a lot of sense when you think about, you know, all of the people that are talking about colonising Mars and other parts of of the solar system. This, this would probably be good information to have. I think so. And no one's done an archaeological approach before. Plenty of studies, of course. So they have designers and engineers and psychologists and even sociologists who, who are all studying everyday life in space, but what makes archaeology different is that we're really interested in in the little patterns and routines of interactions with objects, and we've already found things that even NASA didn't know. Oh, wow. Yeah. We, we were quite astonished. So there's a wall on the Russian Zvezda module of the International Space Station where the crew have stuck up pictures ever since the station was first inhabited in 1998. So everybody knows the pictures are there, but what they didn't know until we documented and then statistically analysed them was that the combination of pictures changes over time. And there's a lot of icons, Russian Orthodox icons that are stuck up there, and their appearance 
isn't random. It's actually linked to events back in Russia. And nobody knew this. And it was only when we did that. I mean, it, it was a fairly small study because it's only a little space. And I think there were 75 items up there, but nobody knew this. So that's the kind of thing that archaeology could find out. Amazing. And, you know, travelling to the International Space Station is probably out of the question for you personally to do this research. And unless it is, then wow. But how, how are you planning to tackle it if you can't be there yourself? Well, I suppose I'm always holding out the hope that one of those space billionaires will decide <laughs> to fund space archaeology. But I probably shouldn't hold my breath on that one. It's it's a bit of an obstacle. So it's so expensive, millions and millions of dollars to go to the International Space Station. And, you know, archaeology funding doesn't produce that kind of money. So we've had to think of some different ways to actually get the data. And one of those is by using the photographic record that starts from 1998 and goes right up to the present. So the crew on the station have been photographing what they do every day for that whole 20-year period. And they're digital photographs. And what makes this interesting is that we can use the metadata, the time uh, and locational information embedded in that digital photograph to kind of reconstruct uh, chronological stratigraphy just as if we were excavating layer by layer down into the earth on a traditional archaeological sites. So we're developing machine learning methods that can see the patterns in how crew members use different kinds of objects so we can map how they change over that 20 years. So that's one way we're getting getting over the obstacle of not actually being able to go into space and excavate. Are you also using you know, some of the astronauts that are currently up on the International Space Station? Are they involved in any way? Crew time to do experiments in, on the ISS is is also very, very expensive. But we were very lucky because uh, due to a combination of factors, this year and next year, they've actually got some spare time for experiments. Usually it takes you know years to kind of get an experiment together and get it in the queue, then actually get it up into the space station. But we are going to be, well, I say flying an experiment. It's not like we uh, have some kind of, I don't know, cube full of stuff that we're (laughs) going to put onto the International Space Station. Our archaeological experiment is asking the crew to do an archaeological a survey that samples different areas in the station to see what objects are there over time. And again, we're going to use digital photographs to do this. So the good thing about this is the crew have to do experiments all the time. Like that's their main work up there. And they're frequently in areas that they have no specific training in. So they're very, very good at following a precise set of instructions or a protocol and not changing anything or not thinking, oh, maybe it'd be better if I did this <laughs> this way or whatever. So they're very professional and good at doing that. So we're sending them up instructions on how to set out, uh, like if they were on Earth, we might call them test pits. 
So a little uh, systematic sample of different locations to find out what's there. So they're going to mark out on the walls of the station one by one metre squares in tape and photograph the squares the same time every day so that we can see the objects that are the highest in frequency at that particular location, how frequently the objects change, and we'll start to see an aspect of, of uh, these daily routines that has been unrecognised up until now. So this is going to take place in January. At the moment, we're constantly in meetings to try and arrange uh, all the practical details. It sounds simple, and I, I'm glad. I guess it's not more complicated because there's so much involved, but there is a lot of planning involved in getting this to work. And in January, fingers crossed, January 2022, the crew are going to become space archaeologists in their own right and carry out what will be the first ever archaeological survey actually in space. So we're oh, super wow. excited. It would be absolutely incredible to be able to see all of these photographs in one place in like an exhibition or something sometime in the future. Ray, that's quite a brilliant idea. (laughs) (laughs) We might have to think about that. There's many parts of the space station that they're kind of aesthetic in their own style. And, And people often think of space stations like in 2001, A Space Odyssey, and you've got this kind of beautiful, hyper-modern, clean, lean, white interior. And the actual International Space Station is actually uh, quite a messy place with stuff everywhere. Oh, no. <laughs> but that's, <laughs> that's what we want, though. We want to find out what that stuff does. And these photographs are going to be, be showing all these different little objects, kind of focusing on them. So things when... You look at a picture inside the ISS, you might be looking at what the astronaut is doing or there might be, you know, some interesting piece of equipment or an experiment they're doing. We're we're interested in that stuff too, but we're actually interested in things like where are the Ziploc bags, where are the scissors? They use scissors for a whole range of things and patches of Velcro, that kind of stuff, the kind of stuff that seems trivial at one level but actually a really vital part of adapting to microgravity. Anyway, coming back to your exhibition idea, (laughs) I really love it and I think we should do it. I think we should too. Let's see who we need to talk to to get it started. I'm keen, (laughs) I'm keen. (laughs) But I'd I'd love for you to also tell me about the things on the International Space Station that come back to Earth because you know, not everything stays up there forever. You've just described a, a quite messy, almost chaotic environment, really. <laughs> so I, I imagine when they don't need things anymore, there's a bit of decluttering happening. Why are the things that come back to Earth important to take a look at as well? Well, we think of the things that come back as a, it's a sort of a discard process. So on your traditional archaeological site, everything that's left behind for the archaeologist to excavate has been discarded in some way, whether it was broken or used or exhausted or abandoned. It's been left there by someone. So we're always looking at objects, not as people use them, but afterwards when they've been discarded. So 
my collaborator, Justin Walsh, is at Chapman University in California, started thinking about the return of stuff from the International Space Station as a form of discard and what it might say about the values attached to the objects that come back. So we started having a look at this process and he actually was able to go and watch the cargo deintegration crew, as they call it, actually unpacking uh, a Dragon cargo vehicle that returned to Earth. So there's a whole bunch of stuff they use up on the station that's very disposable. So wet wipes, they use them for cleaning the station surfaces. Ah. They use um, their disinfectants, the cleaning ones, but they also use them for to clean themselves because it's not possible to have a shower. So they've got a huge quantity of these sort of these used wet wipes, <laughs> and those are they don't come back. What happens to them and a whole lot of other rubbish like food packaging um, is that they're put into an automated vehicle that's sent to burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. So the stuff is destroyed. Then there's all of the experiments and the samples and stuff related to the work that the crew do, and that's sent back to Earth so it can then be, it can go back to the laboratory or the research institution or the university who commissioned the experiment and is going to continue the analysis. So that stuff's treated, that's the, you know, one of the main purposes of the station. So that stuff is treated with incredible care. And then you have other things like the personal objects that belong to the crew. They can only take a little bit of, of their own personal things up there. It's a very limited amount and they can only send a limited amount back. But as a discard process, this stuff is really interesting because I suppose you could you could say that astronauts as a class are kind of venerated. Like they're they're special people have gone through extraordinary training and they live in space. They do these things that most of us are not able to do. So anything associated with them sort of takes on something of that special aura. And in the process of sending this stuff back to Earth, the the deintegration crew uh, also treats like the astronauts um, their their personal belongings, their clothes, their the souvenirs and mementos they've taken up to space to bring back and give to their family and clubs and organisations on Earth. They treat them with this incredible amount of care. So there's this interesting thing where those chosen objects uh, receive a similar almost venerating treatment, but those very personal, intimate things to do with hygiene are treated as 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 rubbish, as trash, as, as something slightly disgusting that needs to be burnt up. So there's all this stuff about boundaries between uh, what's cultural, what's acceptable, uh, all around the body of the astronaut. 
if you see what I mean. So I we do. find this fascinating as well. Yeah. yeah no, I didn't realise how fascinating <laughs> I'd find it as well until you explained it to me. There's some really interesting questions that that raises. I, I also just wanted to ask before we finish up, you know, if people are interested in space archaeology, where can they find out more about your work? Oh, um, they could read my book, uh, Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe Archaeology in the Future, which was published in 2019. Uh, so that's fairly readily available online. I also have a blog called Space Age Archaeology, uh, and there's numerous articles, um, some written for the conversation, that are, are fairly easy to find. So, uh, And if people want to get involved in space archaeology or have a career in it, um, there's a number of great universities in Australia with archaeology degrees, and that's a good starting place. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you for all of this new information that I've just absorbed into my brain. This is wonderful. <laughs> I'm going to go about my day thinking of nothing but this now. Thanks so much for your time. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Ray. That was space archaeologist Alice Gorman. Instagram Australia is bringing together some of the biggest names in the creator community in its first ever virtual festival, Instagram Next. Designed to empower and inspire creators with exclusive workshops and panels, Instagram Next is going to feature an epic lineup of top creators from Australia and New Zealand as well, like Dartham123 and Nick Topher, and they're going to share their insider experience and tips with other creators. Running across Thursday the 18th and Friday the 19th of November, the two-day event will be packed with practical sessions curated to help creators uncover their full potential in the creative space and as entrepreneurs, because the festival will cover topics including building resilience, handling social media burnout, you know, how to go from being gifted to getting paid, and also the anatomy of trends on Instagram. While this festival is invite only for the creator community and industry, select sessions and behind the scenes content from the two days are going to be shared on Instagram Australia's new dedicated account for local creators at Instagram Next AUS. <laughs> Indigilab is holding an Indigihack, and it's all about merging First Nations culture, technology and fashion. It's bringing together Indigenous fashion designers to design culturally appropriate, sustainable and innovative tech solutions to fashion. I recently spoke with Indigilab's CEO, Luke Briscoe, about this event, about Indigilab, about his career in tech and also the nuances of Indigenous science. So, Luke, what sparked your interest in tech? Yeah, definitely. I, um, I've been really uh, inspired by a lot of the uh, technology that was, that was used to really look at cultural mapping up in the north. Um, when I was younger, I did a cultural mapping program uh, with my uncle's uh, corporation um, and learned a lot about um, the importance of uh, how technology can be used uh, to preserve and protect our culture. So, so yeah, really, that was really a grounding um, uh, technically, I suppose, uh, what really 
drew me into technology when I was a kid was um, I used to always tinker around with um, with all the pickups on my guitar, so I needed to learn how to solder. So <laughs> you know, an uncle teach me how to solder. So so I'd um, redo these really cheap guitars and put Damasio pickups on it and all that stuff, you know, making it really um, flash. And, and then, yeah, like I suppose for me, yeah, music was a way of uh, connecting to technology because um, I had to keep up with the latest uh, technology in um, in music. And uh, and I also um, used to uh, uh, service a lot of uh, musical instruments and, you know, a lot of people find their own way into, uh, you know, into science and technology. Yeah, definitely, I think music as a kid and culture combined really drew me into, um, you know, more understanding more about technology and science. Now, in this podcast, we talk about arts as being a part of STEM, so it's STEAM. What resonance does that have for you? What place do you see arts having in the greater world of STEM? Yeah, uh, when I look at how we use these terms, STEAM and STEM, as Indigenous people, so I suppose for me, you really look at it as a uh, rights-based approach because, um, because, you know, on one on one point, there's, you know, science that's driven by Western agendas and then there's Indigenous science, which is, is different again so so I think for me um, you know what really drew me into uh, needing to do more around the work in in STEM but also looking at how art um, can interlink is actually the the uh, rights-based component to it because um, the arts is where all of our culture um, and knowledge uh, and the stories lie so with art you know combining with with STEM is vitally important because um, uh, you know, all of our um, stories are embedded in the arts already, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, great work that has happened. You know, by people like Terry Jenkins and Lydia Miller, who have worked tirelessly to uh, to help build out uh, no more of um, you know the Indigenous cultural intellectual property rights within the arts sector. So, so the arts are vitally important to include into STEM because. Um, have already really taken on that journey um, to understanding uh, Indigenous rights within the arts. So, so you know, those those two combined really um, really need to to really look at a rights based approach. I think to uh, to science and technology for Indigenous people. When we talk about Indigenous science, there's two ways that you can look at it. You can talk about, you know, Indigenous people working in science and then there's Indigenous science. What is the difference there for you? I know that we've discussed this before. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think ultimately the difference is um, is that uh, Western science, you know, uh, for many years has evolved to really focusing on valuing the one person, whereas Indigenous science is more about collective, collective voice around our knowledge systems. So, so when we when we look at this in a science space, um, you know, the focus isn't just on you know the looking at in terms of like you know getting your PhD. It's about looking at things like preserving the culture and the law. Um, of that um, of uh, community science, so um, so you know that's important. Um, you know, kind of a platform to to really um, you know look at 
how uh, collective rights in science, uh, you know, can operate. So, so there are a lot of, uh, in the last probably 10, 15 years, a lot of people moving into into um, Indigenous people moving into science degrees. But, um, but yeah, it's important uh, when, you know, when we use these terms, Indigenous science, um, Indigenous scientists, um, we need to have a rights-based uh, approach when we even talk about it because um, cause when you think about it, um, uh, Indigenous people um, aren't even in, included in the Constitution and with that comes all of the, the alignment with business and, and all those other, um, you know, important, uh, you know, economic and social drivers. But for, in, for Indigenous people, you know, our um, science is a driver for us. But, um, but you know, we're not even recognised in a constitution. There's no treaty. So, so we need to actually stand strong in when we talk about these terms, Indigenous science. We need to not, you know, like um, focus on just getting Indigenous people into STEM careers because, um, to me, that seems like that's a simulation. So, so what we need to do is really uh, work collaboratively together to understand well, what is Indigenous science to us? You know, uh, what we do at Indigilab is we look at the uh, the four principles of um, the Declaration, and and the first one is self determination. So, how does um, self determination apply to um, things like saying Indigenous science when a project um, isn't actually focused on um, you know changing the culture of science? So, so there's these little nuances that. You know, we all need to think about, um, and we've been really um, trying to understand, you know, how we can best do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, what I've come close to is, is something like, uh, well, you know, science sits in in domain of really trying to understand at the moment, understand the uh, key drivers are for um, sustainable development goals. So, so we've been really working closely to to um, look at uh, Indigenous cultural indicators to drive um, action on um, uh, climate change. So then it means that um, if we are looking at Indigenous science, that there's a real understanding and purpose of of what that science is about, not just about getting Indigenous peoples into science, but there's a mutual benefit for both parties, you know, because um, that's how I see us growing a startup sector is to really focusing indigenous science or, um, you know, looking at aligning indigenous cultural indicators with, um, the sustainable development goals, uh, and, um, you know, really focusing, um, you know, on, on things like, um, using our sciences for, um, indigenous sciences for environmental practices or, um, you know, Moving our youth into programs like earth science or um, biology, um, so then um, they can still maintain their stories and customs when they go through to university, but um, but they're not going to be assimilated in a way that um, in a way that you know they've you know forgotten the stories. Um, you know that's where I think there's a real big gap. You know, is making sure that uh, when we talk about getting Indigenous peoples into careers in STEM that, you know, there's a there's a line, you know, like that you cross where you're assimilating into Tell me about Indigilab. Tell me about how you started this, why you started this. Uh, well I suppose it goes back to um what I mentioned earlier about uh you know my my role with um 
my uncle uh, Bennett's corporation being included in um, the cultural uh, keeping place program, um, and you know that really stuck with me. Uh, you know, coming down to the city, and I worked at um, NITV, and I and I saw you know work in digital, and I saw that there needs to be more um, more work done to protect Indigenous culture and knowledge, particularly online, and when we look at data sovereignty, and um, you know look at uh, you know things like um, you know what type of uh, uh, project can Indigenous people um, create to have um, data sovereignty um, to look at projects that um, looks at protecting uh, our understanding and knowledge around ecosystems and the sciences involved with that. So, so Indigilab really started out on a rights-based approach to to looking at how uh, Indigenous uh, traditional knowledge can be um, uh, protected and maintained in a in the science and technology space. It started out really uh, during um, when uh, when there was a big uh, science and innovation boom, um, and uh, in, in in Australia and uh, almost ten years ago, and you know we had this uh, couple of summits and um, projects really to to understand more about um, about what the needs are for our communities and and. Yeah, from the start, you know, of our foundations almost 10 years ago to now, you've really come to understand, um, uh, you know, more about how we can develop these governance structures to protect um, Indigenous science. And I use Indigenous science as a way of asserting my rights as an Indigenous person. So you've got a fashion hack coming up as part of Indigilab. Can you tell me about that? We have a fashion hack that's on our uh, indigihack.com page. And what it's about is about uh, getting youth to be um, involved with a lot of these projects that look at sustainable development goals. A lot of the work I do uh, with Indigilab is trying to get kids to um, be involved in policy discussions and, and, you know, those big global debates. So um, the Indigihack um, is set up particularly for that to allow youth to really, uh, you know, have these bigger discussions about, you know, what they can do to contribute to things like climate change. And so we've um, had this uh, fashion hack idea for the last couple of years. And, and finally, um, yeah, City of Sydney has funded us to roll this um, uh, project out. Uh, so uh, how it works is, um, uh, you know, you go to our uh, portal online and then you can, Submit an idea, you know, your um, concept and ideas. It, it doesn't have to be a fully worked um, prototype of a design. But, um, but what we're looking for uh, with uh, our fashion hack is the use of, um, your, you know, uh, protecting your culture and knowledge within your uh, design, or if you're working with an artist, making sure, you know, firstly that it's culturally appropriate, um, and then looking at uh, the sustainability element to the designs and making sure that you've thought about your supply chain or thought about something that can really impact um, environmental sustainability um, and then also looking at technology. So, you know, looking at um, what type of uh, technologies you want to include. Um, uh, you can also go to our um, uh, Earthkin, uh, dot online website where you can... Um, uh, purchase a uh, an eco tech 
uh, tech fashion kit. So then you can add your element to that if you know if you're if required. Uh, the fashion hacks really trying to get uh, our youth to look at ways in which fashion, or you know, as we know it as fast fashion, can really transfer into something that that is more around sustainable fashion. And uh, you know, who best to drive um, initiatives like that than our youth? Um, but we really have a focus on um, looking at streetwear fashion because um, really, um, you know, our our youth. Uh, and street fashion, you know, really doesn't get the credit it deserves as well because, um, you know, like uh, a lot of the the work of people that do in street fashion are usually minority groups that, um, you know, uh, you know, come up with these great, you know, uh, innovations in fashion, but then when they, you know, you have a replica of it, you know, with Vogue or you have some other um, high-end fashion, you know, taking little bits and pieces of um of our you know street fashion so so yeah you know like i think about all those things um you know how uh in in fashion when i grew up like um how uh you know you would see a lot of the um the uh a lot of the samoans they'd have the e-lover lovers around their baggy jeans and you know all that type of stuff you see that now in terms of like looking at um looking at gender neutral fashion and and i just think oh you know like we're heading towards something that michael jackson uh, wore in remember the time you know so so you know what i'm saying yeah, the too. um yeah it's it's like this whole rebranding of um streetwear and you know indigenous ways of um you know fashion and all this stuff and and to me like getting down to the roots of um, innovation really comes out down to innovating out of necessity. So how Indigenous communities have innovated out of necessity for thousands of years and, and, you know, one way they're doing it now is through fashion and art. So, you know, I think it's um, important for our youth to, you know, take leadership around around that. But also, yeah, test and try, you know, just because that's what science is about, is about um, testing something and trying it if it doesn't work or, try it again so and that's what Indigihack you know aims to do is inspire people just to participate and try something absolutely now if there are any young people listening that wanted to get into tech do you have any advice for them yeah definitely um uh, go to our website uh, in indigilab.com.au um, we're also uh, in the new year we're running a first coders academy for for youth um, in particular, uh, so but, so you can learn how to do like um, coding uh, with Indigenous coders, uh, and then uh, you know if you wanted to branch out into doing uh, some uh, further coding programs um, with General Assembly or or a TAFE or something like that, we'll provide those avenues um, for young coders. Um, but also, um, you know, I think. Uh, Particularly, um, go to our first first coders uh, dot academy site as well because um, very useful information about importance of um, you know getting into coding first because um, you know that's a real important skill that everyone needs to have at this point in time. But also, um, uh, you know, there needs to be a practical understanding about um, you know why you want to 
get into coding for you know for the starters and and that's what the first academy uh first coders academy is all about is about you know providing a a a uh, relative kind of um engagement for our youth to uh want to get into coding so so things like um what we're going to be running is um looking at gaming and and coding so um you know we need to have more uh youth uh working in in IT and getting IT skills but i think um doing our fundamental uh coding program will be vital for these um kids to grow in the sector i think or to getting kids into into coding but also through our programs you know it's run by um indigenous um coders so it's important that they see that you know that there's um indigenous people that are making waves in this space and and that you know they can um work with them if they have any concerns around um cultural matters if they you know work in places like Google or Microsoft so so yeah that's a really um important platform that's launching in the new year is first coders academy so um yeah i think um you know both of those in, in digihack and first coders academy um yeah like we're really trying to get our youth involved with um with uh looking at how culture can really drive innovation and technology um and it starts with the youth i think absolutely well thanks so much for your time luke it's always great to hear from you yeah thanks Ray. thanks for having me on the show anytime that was Indigilab's Luke Briscoe, and that brings us to the end of this first episode of STEAM. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know. Give us a rating, share it with your friends, subscribe, and if there's anything STEAM-related you'd like to know more about, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at Ray Johnston, and I'll give you all the info in the next STEAM episode. See you then. 